This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Trey Gowdy joins me at the bottom of the hour. He's got a brand new book out and a whole lot of experience, especially when it comes to these political conventions. The DNC, the virtual one, got underway last night to do RNC next week. And then, of course, we've got day two tonight. And the president, is going to, his first stop today is going to be Arizona. He's going to make a major announcement. 300 miles of the wall is done. I actually, after the first year and all the pushback he got with Paul Ryan's first budget, I did not think he'd going to get this far. He's going to be talking about it. Why do I think immigration is working uh, and crackdown on illegal immigration? Because nobody is talking about it. Uh, we will. And we have a lot to go over today, including a lot of those speeches that took place last night without any applause. But, uh, but I have a lot of opinion. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Tell me what your fans, what what are they most concerned about? Free uh, college education, free Medicare. People don't want to pay the taxes for it. And that's why this whole thing about government's bad has been such a a, a downer. Makes a lot of sense, right? Um, Another day, another media pass from Joe Biden. No speeches, no questions, no interviews. Excuse me. There was one interview with hip hop's Cardi B in a heavily edited, tedious give and take where, where you guessed it, uh, Joe surprised us again by not saying no to Medicare for all and guaranteeing free college. Wow. And guess what's hard hitting interview is up next for Biden? Hamilton's Lynn Manuel Miranda. You can't make this up. Number two. The bottom line is the COVID virus is temporary. Nobody's leaving the city and giving up their family and giving up everything else because of the COVID virus. They're leaving because they're scared to death, just like they were prior to 1994. American cities are burning with rage. There's only one cure, empower law enforcement. Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and now New York are hurtling towards points of no return. Number one, Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. Exactly. It is what it is. Right. Thanks for that. Uh, Michelle Obama, night one done at the DNC. We'll review the theme coming together and how bad Donald Trump is. We knew, expected that. We heard no plans, waited 30 minutes before we heard Joe's name while hearing way too much about Bernie Sanders and confused conservative John Kasich. We'll review day two. So let's get started. Michelle Obama was the keynote. She got well-delivered, looked great. She recorded it weeks ago. Is she that busy doing her podcast or growing her garden that she couldn't have waited for Kamala Harris to be named as number two and maybe wove her into the speech that a lot of people look forward to? I mean, a book still top ten two years after being released. Guy who makes who writes books like me can appreciate that type of success. So to me... You what you like the speech? Why? What does she say? 
So let's take a look at what she said. She acted like the country was great under her husband and under President Trump, it's gone all bad. What did her husband pass in a bipartisan way? How are we together? And what did she do and her husband do in order to get four more years? Not ran on their record, ran on how bad Mitt Romney would have been for the country. Cut one. Over the past four years, a lot of people have asked me, when others are going so low, does going high still really work? My answer, going high is the only thing that works. Because when we go low, when we use those same tactics of degrading and dehumanizing others, we just become part of the ugly noise that's drowning out everything else. Well, that's great. But the problem is I watched John Lewis's funeral and I watched her husband, the pres- former president of the United States, take that moment of this great civil rights uh, this activist, congressman, and talk about gerrymandering, filibustering, and how this election matters so much and how bad Donald Trump is, really, to pass legislation to finally change America. Okay, is that going high? To me, that's low. Also, as a former president, how high is it to go out there and campaign like you're on the ballot? I don't see George Bush, Bill Clinton, LBJ, Nixon, uh, Hubert Humphrey, who name somebody Why is he going out running again? Yeah, Joe Biden was a running mate that he didn't even support last time around and try to convince him to run, not run this time around. Run high, stay low, low. Please push back on that. I really would like to see how Barack Obama brought the country together. Michelle Obama also talked about how he's the wrong president. Cut three. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. Okay, let's it re- is what it is. Thank you for that. Uh, so let's think about this. You might not like Donald Trump's philosophy. I don't think he's in over his head. You might not like what he's doing on immigration. He's not over his head. You might not like what he's doing on tax cuts. He's not over his head. You may not like how he's handling the pandemic. I will tell you, anybody would say, what the heck is hitting the whole world? So if you want to talk about handling the pandemic and how he would have been different, please tell me what Joe Biden would have done. Urged every governor to make a statewide mandate. Fantastic. The president's recommended that after not getting clear advice from his own medical team, many of which have been laying around for 20, 30 years like Anthony Fauci. In terms of who handled the pandemic better, I bring you back to a quote that I had and I'm going to keep forever. Ron Klain, chief of staff for Vice President Biden, who was in charge of the response to H1N1. Quote, it's purely fortuity that this isn't one of the mass casualties in American history. It had nothing to do with anything we did It was all luck. Joe Biden, when asked about H1N1 and should we be ready, by the way, he said it came from China. We blame Trump for this virus, according to Democrats and Cuomo. Uh, But it's China's fault for H1N1. Guess what? It's China's fault for both. Quote, Joe Biden sits down on a morning show and was asked about, can you catch this anywhere? Well, I would not go anywhere in a confined place right now. For example, if you get on a plane and sneeze, that goes all around the place. The airlines went crazy minutes after he left. And then quickly, I called Jack Lou, Janet Napolitano, and Ray LaHood. I believe he was energy secretary. 
uh, Transportation Secretary, into the Oval Office and said, clean up this mess. That's the genius that we are waiting for to save the day. Next off, Governor Andrew Cuomo. If Governor Cuomo wants to talk about how it hit him, how it reacted, how he overreacted with the need for the emergency ship and the need to convert uh, to an emergency outside hospital with the Javits Center and then talked about how he bent the curve, I think that's accurate. But what Governor Cuomo instead decided to do is come out and blame the president for everything and actually blame his competence for everything. So Governor Cuomo gets to the microphone, one of the keynote speakers. He calls himself as a genius now because we do lead everybody with the amount of cases and the amount of deaths. Uh, Even if the cases went down, the proportion of deaths haven't. So Governor Andrew Cuomo, cut 12. We climbed the impossible mountain, and right now we are on the other side. We saw the failure of a government that tried to deny the virus, then tried to ignore it, and then tried to politicize it. The failed federal government that watched New York get ambushed by their negligence and then watched New York suffer, but all through it learned absolutely nothing. And for all the pain and all the tears, our way worked. Okay. We bent the curve. It's down below 1%. I'm in New York. I'm on Long Island. It helps me a lot. I knew you're listening around the country. Just know Long Island's attached to New York City. New York City's got a little bit stricter rules, but everyone's trying to go back to school, at least a hybrid way, unless they're totally uh, money or something else is keeping them back or uh, the teachers union or problems with uh, with parents. I'm listening to Governor Cuomo. I go, is, is this true? And then I, I read the quote and then I listened to it back. I go, what are you talking about? Didn't you say just the opposite? Yeah, they've had problems in the past and they've clashed. But listen to what he said describing the president's response. Cut 13. Do I have faith in the president? Look, what the federal government did working with states, as I just said, was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, We bent the curve. We flattened the curve. Government did it. People did it. But government facilitates people's actions, right? President brought in the Army Corps of Engineers. They built uh, 2,500 beds at Javits that uh, Michael and Northwell were operating. It was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, Close to 1,000 people have gone through Javits. Uh, So these were just extraordinary efforts and acts of mobilization. Please Please be smarter than that. Whether you're a Democrat or an independent, you want to go at the president, there's plenty of stuff to go at him. When it comes to New York... My goodness, the only thing that delivered better to New York was the president when he went directly to Long Island because they were having problems because they were dropping things off in this the place that New York told them to in New Jersey. And then they had to go quick pick it up in New Jersey. Finally, Steve Ballone of Suffolk County called up the White House and says, can you just deliver directly to us? And they said, fine. That's the great response from Governor Cuomo. Cut 14. He has been good in delivering for New York. He has. He is- uh, he has. He has delivered for New York. The Army Corps of Engineers, we built thousands of beds. He sent the uh, Navy ship Comfort to New York. He has delivered for New York. He has. Okay. Uh, I'm going to play that every time Governor Cuomo speaks. We're going to keep this on ice, ready to use it, because either he's lying yesterday or lying then. Either way, it's terrible leadership because he talks with this New York accent and with the swagger. People tend to believe him. 
don't. He takes no responsibility for the unrest in New York City, for the $1 billion cut in cops and the, the lack of support for law enforcement, which really is at the base of all this. Remember, this happened in Minneapolis, not New York. Why are we letting Fifth Avenue rot? Why has the city not come back yet? His whole tax base is one to another state or just left Manhattan. And it's, it's his idiot mayor's fault, too. The other big part last night was to show how the country's coming together to get rid of Donald Trump. Case in point, John Kasich, former colleague here at Fox News, did a good job on his show, filled in for Bill O'Reilly all the time. Then he was a conservative who helped balance the budget with Newt Gingrich. However, he hates Trump's guts. And he didn't even show up for the RNC when it was in his state where he was governor. And he took the ultimate move in a taped address sitting there on a crossroad, literally, with his shirt sleeves on and no tie and no jacket. Here's what he said. Cut 15. There are Republicans and independents who couldn't imagine crossing over to support a Democrat. They fear Joe may turn sharp left and leave them behind. I don't believe that because I know the measure of the man. It's reasonable, faithful, respectful. And you know, no one pushes Joe around. I got news for you. Kasich can't be right, and Bernie Sanders can't be right. Cut nine. Our campaign ended several months ago, but our movement continues and is getting stronger every day. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical are now mainstream. But let us be clear. If Donald Trump is reelected, All the progress we have made will be in jeopardy. Moderate Democrats laugh at Bernie Sanders. He wants Medicare for all. He wants the end of fossil fuels. He wants free college. He wants free health care. Okay, that is not possible. Moderates know that Biden used to know that. But why is Bernie Sanders convinced that Biden's the right guy? Because he's gotten most of what he wants. And they signed a cohabitated agreement that the president mockingly refers to as a manifesto. Kasich can't be confident legitimately that he's supporting a moderate Democrat, which is unthinkable because the president's got his severe conservative agenda and accomplishments. It's all personal. And if you want to know what kind of guy John Kasich is from other politicians' perspective, Chris Christie went out of his way to weigh in on a hostile network, ABC, Cut 17. And John Kasich, just to show you where John Kasich's standing is in the Republican Party, when he was the only Republican governor left on the stage... In 2016, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich, the three candidates left. Do you know how many Republican governors of his colleagues, his sitting colleagues at the time, endorsed John Kasich? Zero. And the reason they didn't endorse him is because he's a backstabber and he's an untruthful guy. And so tonight, Republicans are going to look at that and go, you can have him. Please believe me. Give us a break. Get him out of our party. You take him for a little while. Because on top of all that, I've worked with John a lot. He's exhausting. Joe Biden's going to be getting calls from uh, from John Kasich. He's going to want to change his phone number. And by the way, a uh, good point. Governor Christie lays it out. Number two, he did actually go and see, asked to see the president, and the president saw him. So uh, it blows me away. I know that Joe Biden says I'm not for Medicare for all, but for his expanding Obamacare to the point where it's going to get there. Number two, he's not banning fracking, but he's not allowing additional, guaranteeing additional uh, Drilling. 
If you tell that to people in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, goodbye. But Kamala Harris is against those things. So is Bernie Sanders. And they both got huge influence. And if anybody's been looking at Joe Biden, who they're hiding for a great reason, he is not the same guy and he's a terrible candidate. You watch some debate, it's pathetic. You watch him with Cardi B, it's cringeworthy. You know that he's not going to be running this government. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I need your calls next. one 408 7669 Also go through your emails, briankilmeade.com. Don't move. Holding our politicians' feet to the fire, no matter who they are. That's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I watched the first half hour of the convention tonight, and I come in with more questions than answers. First of all, is this going to work? The first half hour felt more to me than a, like a telethon than it did like uh, the national convention that we're used to seeing. Uh, right, and that's Chris Wallace. I think he's just given a, a very fair opinion. I don't know what could be better. They have celebrities. They got singers. No one's there. People all recorded their stuff. Some is some is live, but it's not there. The candidate's not there. The candidate's not giving interviews. There was nobody on the Sunday shows kind of teeing it up for everyone to get excited. The big news was Michelle Obama. Now no one's going to say she's going to be the second one on the ticket. Uh, they thought that if Joe Biden was trailing and he... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Pick somebody as bad as Tim Kaine, they would just substitute Michelle Obama in to save the country. Got it? And now nobody thinks that because they have Kamala Harris. Bernie Sanders is coming out, gets nine minutes. Nine minutes to explain how the agenda is get him elected and then maybe push him around. Kasich comes out and says, let's think about being a conservative. Meanwhile, in terms of how effective it was, I want you to hear what Britt Hume said about the speech. He, uh, he put it all in perspective. Cut 20. She was very good. Uh, she's a very good speaker. And for someone who doesn't like politics, she certainly is good at it. Uh, and I don't dispute anything my colleagues have said here about how effective the speech was. But it's a noteworthy factor the way we view these things. We're talking here about the style and some broad themes. We're not talking about the specifics of what she said, which was absolutely laced with distortions and exaggerations. But that's what we expect in political rhetoric. That's the way you do it. But what you did is you talked about Black Lives Matter and you talked about the president walking over to St. John's Church. But you didn't talk about Antifa. You didn't talk about the protests that have become riots that have nothing to do with African-Americans and equality in America. Uh, and that was a missed opportunity for it to be statesman-like. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. fastest three hours in radio you're with brian kilmeade agent struck despite the plain language of his text and emails despite the inspector general's report and despite common sense doesn't think he was biased he thinks calling someone destabilizing for the country isn't bias he thinks promising to protect the country from someone he hasn't even begun to investigate isn't bias Agent Strzok thinks pronouncing someone innocent before bothering to interview more than 30 different witnesses isn't bias. Trey Gowdy going about his prosecution and, and inquisition on, Trey, on, on uh, Peter Strzok. So last time we saw him in front of everyone and Peter Strzok's horrible personality and arrogance was on display and somehow Trey Gowdy kept his cool. He's a Fox News contributor now and a former congressman from South Carolina, former chairman of Oversight. And his new book is now out as of yesterday. It's excellent. It's called Doesn't Hurt to Ask, Using the Power of Questions to Communicate, Connect, and Persuade. Uh, congressman, welcome back. Hey, Brian. How are you? That was uh, one of the most intriguing moments I've seen in congressional hearings. Did you, uh, Just on that, the color of this, did you know what you were getting into with Peter Strzok? Did you know you are going to get this type of pushback and smugness? You know, Ryan, I, I actually was on the phone last night with John Ratcliffe, who's the director of national intelligence, also a former federal prosecutor. I think Devin would tell you the same thing. We had no idea the depth of what we were getting into. And, and it is heartbreaking when you think about the FBI and the reputation we want that entity to have and the Department of Justice. It is. It's at the same time maddening. And heartbreaking. I mean, look at the upper echelon. I mean, Peter Strzok was not some rogue agent in Cincinnati. He, he, he was a national security supervisor. 
and he was out to stop the candidacy of someone he didn't like politically. I, I, uh, Brian, we give cops tons of power in right. our culture, tons of power, but we do not give them the power to influence elections. So here's a little bit more from that, just so people understand. Then I want to move to uh, Kleinsmith and his, uh, I guess, towards his indictment. My presumption, based on that horrible, disgusting behavior, that the American population would not elect somebody demonstrating that behavior to be president of the United States. We'll stop it. You were speaking on behalf of the American people. Is that correct? I don't recall writing that text. What Are I you denying you, writing the text? What I can tell you is that text in no way suggested that I or the FBI would take any action to influence the candidacy of Agent Strzok. That that is a fantastic answer to a question nobody asked. (laughs) Put it this way. way, You should have ripped tickets for that. Uh, Well, you know what, Brian? That's the public hearing, and you've heard me say this a million times, and this is terrible terrible for me to admit to somebody who is in television and radio like you are, but I hate public hearings. The deposition two weeks prior, 12 hours, no time limits, that's where you can make some progress with a witness is is no time limits. I mean, the five minutes, you just feel like you're – just trying to cram important stuff into small segments of time. I mean, you, you remember the bar hearing, what, a couple of weeks ago? I mean, what did you learn in the bar hearing that you did not know before you went into Nothing. it? Nothing. Other than Democrats are really, really mad at Bill Barr. Right. <laughs> that, that's it. Right. Uh, and, and that in particular, uh, the word is the text message is coming out of Andy McCabe that shows what the, the headline is a different relationship with Lisa Page. Anything else you could shed on? Can you let me know what that means? I, I do not. Okay. Um, I, I know that Andy McCabe, um, who has a remarkable recall when it comes to things that benefit him, doesn't even remember being in the room or part of the text exchange about an insurance policy. So so the deputy director of the FBI can remember everything that cast him in a non-negative light, but he can't remember his participation. I mean – Look, if Lisa Page and Kleinsmith are the best lawyers that the FBI can find, they need to start recruiting more heavily uh, in, in law schools. I mean, that, that's just – she doesn't even know the penalty for false statement. Kleinsmith alters manufacturer's evidence. That really is the best that the FBI can do for lawyers? Well, look, he did it. He almost pulled it off. I mean, if, if Hillary Clinton had won, we never would have known. And for people at home not watching and listening as close because it's a blizzard of information and news, uh, this guy, Kleinsmith, he looks like a young guy that can't be, uh, that's not that powerful, but he is very powerful. And what happens is, in layman's terms, they want to get permission from the FISA court to tap the lines of Carter Page. Now, Carter Page doesn't even know the president. I don't think he's ever met the president, but he was hired by the Trump campaign to provide insight on Russia, specifically energy. So this, before they went and got the FISA application, for some reason, Kleinsmith reached out to the CIA. He must have had an inclination that he had links there and said, have you ever used Carter Page as a source for anything? And they go, yeah, he did. They go, ooh, okay. He changed it and said the CIA said no. Now, fundamentally, I would be I, my hands would be uh, shaking if I went to do that to an email from the CIA. But he did it. To put it in perspective, that might have stopped the probe right there because it wouldn't have even applied to the FISA court. It would it would exonerate a Carter Page, right? 
Yeah, I mean, when your argument is someone is an agent of Russia and you actually have evidence they're an agent of the United States, that tends to undercut your case. I mean, that's that was their allegation to FISA, is that Carter Page is suspected of being an agent of a foreign power, in this case, Russia. So when you have compelling evidence that, in fact, he's an agent of your very own government, don't you think that would undercut your case? This is uh, – I would think so, and I think that we got to start looking at Stefan Halper and Mifsud, and then I think this thing will all fall together. And I think my gut feeling – you didn't say this. I'm not putting you in that category, but John Brennan knows everything. When you talk about other countries, you think CIA, not necessarily FBI, and you seem to be getting at that uh, with this question. And this is why, Trey, your book is going to be so valuable you not only say this is a great way to influence people, it's, not, it's a great way to persuade and connect with people, but this is what you do. Listen to this. Do you know if the Bureau ever relied on the Steele dossier as, any, as part of any court filings, applications, petitions, pleadings? I have no awareness. Did the CIA rely on it? No. It was not in any way used as a basis for the intelligence community assessment that was done. Uh, it was. It was not. Now you've had it. You knew they say. In, well, when I watch the shows on television, they say no one ever asks a question as a lawyer that you don't know the answer to. What is the right answer that John Brennan should have given? Yeah, let me, I'm going to amend that for just a second. If you ever go back to law school, Brian, don't ever ask a question you don't know the answer to unless the answer doesn't matter. So in other words, if somebody has done something that's terrible, uh, I, I used to do it when, when you know, I had a guy that stabbed his wife. And my question was, what did your wife say to you the first time you stabbed her? I don't know the answer to that question, but but the answer doesn't matter. Uh, right. Yeah, I couldn't mention you. dossier. It was still classified at the time. So I, I couldn't I could not ask with particularity about crown material dossier. It was still classified. But I knew, because Devin was kind enough to let me be involved, I knew that it was relied upon, and uh, and he denied it. So you, you mentioned Stefan Halper and others that may kind of circulate, you know, back percolate back up to the top. I, I don't think I don't think we're done with Comey and Brennan. I don't think we're done with Kleinsmith. I think some of these names are going to come back up as Durham begins to wrap up his work. So, Trey, tell me about this book. You know, there's a lot of people say, here's my biography. Here's my time in Congress. You have a different approach with this. It's called Doesn't Hurt to Ask, Using the Power of Questions to Communicate, Connect, and Persuade. What made you realize this is something you wanted to share? Uh, Tim Scott, you know, convinced me that that's what I've done my entire life, you know, more in a courtroom than in Congress. But I do think, Brian, people want to be heard and they want to be understood and they want whatever they believe. And you're right. It is not a book about what I believe. You, You cannot figure out my politics in this book. I want to help you communicate what you believe and in particular by using questions. And I'll tell a story in the book about the president. unexpectedly inviting me into the Oval Office to participate in a conversation between the media and him. And he pulled me over there and said, what do you think? Do you trust the power of questions for the next thing out of your mouth to be a question? I mean, most people want to say, I believe, I think, I feel. I want to teach you how to use questions to prove your point, whether it's talking to your teenage kid or your coworker or about politics. So I'm going to re- I'll, I'll give people some background on it. Mick Mulvaney and you and Mick Mulvaney are having lunch. 
And he said, why don't you go meet the boss? And you go, wow, it's a little surprise. So he goes over there, and it's in the middle of another Trump controversy where all the press is uh, enraged because he included Alabama in this hurricane map. Uh, and in one of his tweets, he said, Alabama, Alabama was not in the line of fire for this hurricane. And he said to you, what do you think of my tweet? And what did you say? I, I, I turned to the media and I said, why do we have something called the rule of completeness in our justice system? Why does our justice system equate completeness with fairness? And my point was, you're fine to say the president mentioned Alabama. If you want to embarrass him, that's fine. You can do that. Don't you think it's more fair to include the fact that he also named the other states? I mean, why would you single out Alabama unless you're biased against him? So it's it's really my way of getting them to yeah. admit that, that completeness and fairness go hand in hand. But it's also genius because you're not you're not answering the question. You're giving you're making them look at the they'll look at their question differently. I'm gonna be honest, Brian. I did not wake up that morning thinking I was gonna be involved in the middle in the middle of that conversation. I was just I was I was just trying to get Mulvaney to pay for lunch, which is something he's never done before. I wasn't trying to get in the middle of that. Right. Um so you always told us when you're in the uh in uh Congress, you're like, I don't want to meet with the president. I want to be fair. I don't want to be biased. I don't want to have a personal relationship with him. Why then and why now do you talk to him? Well, you know, back then, I, I really think it, it's a little bit like, you know, not quite like Mueller, but, you know, the president was by someone who doesn't like him. I mean, Mueller didn't like him, and they still found nothing. I just – I think if you don't have a relationship with someone, don't start it while you're supposed to be conducting an investigation. <laughs> now, having said that, Brian, right. I'm incredibly naive because right. the media is going to give you no credit for that. The, the, the media is not – you know, if you don't reach the conclusion they like, they're not going to give you any credit. But he's a golfer, and I'm a golfer, and he was kind enough. He actually you know, he actually signed a picture for my mom. That's what she wanted for Christmas. That's a pretty cheap – Christmas gift. So he invited me over. That's the first time I met him. Uh, we played uh, golf a couple of times. Um, I have not been around him nearly as much as, you know, I mean, Lindsay. obviously the people that work for him, Lindsay, um, but every time I have been around him, he has been um, incredibly gracious and, um, and, and he's blunt. You know, he says, Gowdy, you're right about half the time. Uh, which is which is more than, which is more than I get with the person I live with. But I, I mean, to me, it is funny for someone to say, you know what, I like you, but you're right about half the time. Right. So, uh, last the last thing about your book, and we'll talk about it along the line because as it becomes a bestseller, you want to keep it going because you're a competitive guy. And I remember you last time you came in with Tim Scott, you wrote a book. Who knows how perfect that book should be re-released now because it talks about. Uh, the history of race relations in our country as you guys grew up. And now you're both in South Carolina representing your state as a black and white man. And the progress that still need to be made, you should re-release it, but you got to make your own career decisions. But, Trey, in particular, someone listening right now who says, I'm not interested in politics, I just want to be able to get ahead, and every time I go over for Thanksgiving or have a beer at the bar, I end up in fights. This is one way to avoid that. By by asking questions rather than coming with declarative statements, correct? You can avoid – you can get along with people better even you disagree with. 
Yeah, Brian, I spent almost 20 years in a courtroom standing in front of 12 people. I had no idea what their politics were. I had no idea what their backgrounds were. And you can't alienate and offend people and persuade them. So in this book, I'm trying to help people understand, number one, identify your purpose. If your purpose is to have an argument, this book won't help. If your purpose is to move others closer to to the way you think or at least to a better understanding of why you are what you are, and then on top of that, how to use questions and how to repackage what the other side said and get them to define their terms. I mean, think, Brian, how many people every day use some word in a sentence to you that gives you an opportunity to say, what do you mean? I mean, the word fair. Make somebody define that sometime. The word right, the word just, I mean, make them define the terms. Don't let them get away with using words until you both agree what the word means. So very interesting. I'll give you an example. So if I'm hanging out at the bar with you and I'm a Democrat and to be fair, I say, Trey, to be fair, Trump has done a bad job. You'd come back at me and say, what do you mean by fair? And, next and I would you know, also say, what do you mean by bad job, and what is your objective standard for judging it? Because yeah. he won the Electoral College. Are you also saying that, that half of your fellow citizens are wrong? And, or, and how to make that conversation a fight? Well, you're wrong about that. You're just biased. And next thing you know, you guys are arguing. You're not friends anymore. You know, so— and you, and you can't persuade if you're arguing. I mean, if, if people want to argue, you can make a lot of money doing that. I mean, one reason I, I frankly, Brian, love your radio show and I love you on television is you can discuss things with people that you disagree with, and I never see your temperature go up. And therefore, I would argue you are persuasive. I mean, people who don't agree with you on other issues will give you the benefit of the doubt because you are perceived as being – a calm and rational and logical. And if you want to move people, that's what you got to do. And in this book, I even talk about how to fake it. I mean, we all get mad, but but how do you keep that tap down right. and kind of manifest credibility and sincerity even when you don't feel it? Right. And one way for you to keep it tapped down is don't ever talk to Peter Strzok again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but you know what? He's not persuadable. Anyone I, who I thinks. Agree. I agree. That he's that he was not biased. Listen, it's just not persuadable. Hey, make your life a little bit better. Make your relationships a little bit more successful. Pick up Trey's book. Doesn't hurt to ask. Using the power of questions to communicate, connect, and persuade. Trey Gowdy, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Take care of yourself. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I mean, just extraordinary speech. I mean, she's beautiful. I mean, it was so beautiful. And, you know, she wasn't just putting the president down. She was trying to pick the country up. I was just blown away by what she did. And she was building on on the incredible performance of a lot of other people. But that was an extraordinary moment, I think, in American life, what she just did for this country. The most extraordinary moment in American life, what she did to the country? That is Van Jones of CNN talking about Michelle Obama's speech, which was fine to the point, but it was not based in reality. She talked about her husband being a unifier and how close the country was, but how Donald Trump has ripped it apart. 
the social unrest, the civil unrest did not come up. Uh, the defense, the, our country was really respected around the world till Donald Trump took over. The facts just don't line up with that. And she had no policy at all, but she's not a politician, but she was talking politics. To me, she had it every way she wanted because she got a free pass. And I believe Van Jones really liked it. He really, really liked it. Don't move. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, live from New York and heard around the country, actually around the world, this is Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, it's the city that has gone to sleep and left. Everyone's left. Uh, people are, are not working here. There's no tourists here. Uh, no one's going to retail stuff here. You can't even eat indoors here. But I'm glad I'm here. I hated being out of the studio. I love the fact that our team's together. Allison's here, Eric's here, and Pete's in an undisclosed location because of separation, right? Is that the truth? You guys, He would have been too close to you? Or only two of three of you get along? Only two or three of us get along. All right, we'll find out who that is. I'll try to put two and two together. Um, This hour, we're going to be joined by uh, three exciting guests. uh, Jane Hampton Cook, she did a great biography on the history of women's suffrage. She's going to be with us. You know this is the anniversary of the the 1909 Amendment. Um, Yeah, 19th Amendment uh, that was passed a uh, hundred years ago. I cannot believe it's embarrassing that it took that long for women to be able to vote. But what they had to go through is even more embarrassing and laudatory. So we'll talk about that. And Jorge Ventura will be here. He's with the daily caller, really brave reporter. He's been in Portland through these three months, a lot of these three months, seeing who's behind these protests that have morphed into violent riots. You got to see this video that's been posted. You have to follow this guy, Hernandez, and you got to follow Jorge Ventura. They've been posting video. They have to dress up like they're with Antifa in order to not basically get the crap beat out of them or killed. And then they sit there and they're able to tape a lot of these beatdowns, which has nothing to do with racial justice and all that to do with anarchy, socialism, and hating America and just hurting innocent people. And then we'll do a simulcast with Stuart Varney. You'll finally see what I look like as I go on Fox Business Network. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Tell me what your fans, what what are they most concerned about? Free uh, college education, free Medicare. People don't want to pay the taxes for it. And that's why this whole thing about government's bad has been such a, a, a downer. Uh, government's bad. I'm not really sure what you're talking about, Joe, but I never do. Another day, another media pass from Biden. No speeches, no questions, no interviews. Excuse me. Let me check myself. One interview with rapper Cardi B in a heavily edited, tedious give and take for Elle magazine, where you guessed it. It's Joe surprised us again by saying, no, I'm not taking Medicare for all off the table and guaranteed free college. Isn't that interesting? And a surprise to his platform. And guess what hard-hitting interview is up next for Biden? Hamilton's Lim-Manuel Miranda. You can't make it up. Number two. 
Bernie the bottom line Kemp. is the COVID virus is temporary. Nobody's leaving the city and giving up their family and giving up everything else because of the COVID virus. They're leaving because they're scared to death, just like they were prior to 1994. Bernie Carrick, police commissioner, he knows he understands the virus, the pandemic once in a lifetime, but you don't understand the civil unrest. You don't understand the restrictions that still exist. You don't understand the quarantine that stopped tourism. And American cities, they're burning with rage. There's only one cure, empower law enforcement. In Portland, Seattle, and Chicago, they are not empowered. And New York, you got 35 to 36,000 ready to do their jobs. You won't let them. Number one. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Night one, done at the DNC. We'll review the theme coming together and how bad Donald Trump is, according to them. We heard no plans, waited 30 minutes to hear Joe Biden's name while hearing way too much about Bernie Sanders. Confused conservative John Kasich. We're also going to preview day two. So a lot of people are upset on the left about John Kasich getting a prominent spot. He's in the middle of a field at a crossroads. Get it? For the country and the party. John Kasich. It's pure personal. There's no doubt about it. So some of the stuff that's gone back and forth, for example, John Kasich, uh, what for, for re- Republicans, they look at Joe Biden and they say, wait a second, look at the people around him. Bernie Sanders is singing his praises. AOC is a part of his advisory team. You think she, Kamala Harris, who's against fracking, decriminalizing border crossings, Medicare for all, uh, she's his running mate. So, of course, he's not a moderate. No, he's a moderate. Governor Case says, no, he's a moderate. So he got himself in trouble when he uh, came out, uh, Kasich did, against AOC, which was inexplicable because no one asked him to. Evidently, people are writing him saying, are you kidding me? This guy's going to be a push way to the left. He's 77 years old, surrounded by younger people with a different agenda. And Kasich went out and uh, tweeted this. You know, I listen to people all the time to make these statements. And because AOC gets outsized publicity doesn't mean she represents the Democratic Party. She's just a part, just a member of it. And it's on both sides, whether it's Republican or the Democrat, meaning extremes, I guess. And then AOC tweets back. It's great that Kasich has woken up and realized the importance of supporting Biden Harris. I hope he gets through uh, gets through to GOP voters. Yet, also, something tells me a Republican who fights against women's rights doesn't get to say who is who is in and who isn't isn't representative of the Democratic Party. So he's not welcome there, and he's not welcome, John Kasich, on the right because he alienated himself after being governor of Ohio. No one really rallied around him. For his presidency, he only won one state. It was Ohio. He just refused to quit. And after he hopped up and did this prominent role in day one of the DNC, Chris Christie weighed in. Cut 17. And John Kasich, just to show you where John Kasich's standing is in the Republican Party, when he was the only Republican governor left on the stage in 2016, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich, the three candidates left. Do you know how many Republican governors of his colleagues, his sitting colleagues at the time, endorsed John Kasich? Zero. And the reason they didn't endorse him is because he's a backstabber and he's an untruthful guy. And so tonight, Republicans are going to look at that and go, you can have him. Please believe me. Give us a break. Get him out of our party. You take him for a little while. Because on top of all that, I've worked with John a lot. He's exhausting. Joe Biden's going to be getting calls from, uh, from John Kasich. He's going to want to change his phone number. 
<laughs> Probably got a few calls already. He doesn't have a big following. It's not like a big conversion. The whole Lincoln Project hasn't made a dent in the president. And I think the president's on a bit of a roll in the battleground states in that CNN poll, which they don't talk about, as I predicted. Uh, they are basically level. And there's four points on the national poll. And these are registered voters. Next, Andrew Cuomo. I found his address, and I'll get to Michelle Obama shortly. But Governor Cuomo, totally insincere. He is so caught up in his hype. It's unbelievable. You would think he's got 99% approval rating and then nobody died in New York. We have by far leading deaths. And by we were the first. I get it. Nobody knew where this was coming from. It came from Europe because China got to Europe. Italy especially. They come to New York and they hit us. You expect the president of the United States to know that there's a virus rifling through Europe when Europe doesn't even know there's a, there's a, a virus going through all their countries. So they come here and they poison New York by mistake. And then we have Chinese nationals coming here, not knowing, we assume, they're asymptomatic, that they got this virus. And we know what happened. So along the way, Governor Cuomo has praised President Trump a lot. They fought, but they praised him a lot. But he did not praise him last night. Listen to this insincere slam, cut 12. We climbed the impossible mountain. And right now we are on the other side. We saw the failure of a government that tried to deny the virus, then tried to ignore it, and then tried to politicize it. The failed federal government that watched New York get ambushed by their negligence and then watched New York suffer, but all through it learned absolutely nothing. And for all the pain and all the tears, our way worked. Okay. You cost us billions in a ship and a conversion to the Javits Center and PPE that was overpriced and ventilators that you needed that you never needed. We ended up giving, ended up giving it to other states. So I'm saying to myself, does he, did they just have a fallout? A month ago, he was going to the White House asking for money for a bridge or a tunnel. And the president said, you know, let me think about it because this is the time we need the jobs, the infrastructure. All right, let me think about it. And they had a good conversation. And then he says that. Now, look, it's a convention. I get it. But Governor Murphy also is a Democrat, more liberal, I think, than Governor Cuomo. And he does not make it personal while saying that, you know, where he thinks the federal government had failed. But Cuomo goes out of his way to do this. Shows how petty he is. Cut 13. Do I have faith in the president? Look, what the federal government did working with states, as I just said, was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, we bent the curve. We flattened the curve. Government did it. People did it. But government facilitates people's actions, right? President brought in the Army Corps of Engineers. They built uh, 2,500 beds at Javits that uh, Michael and Northwell were operating. It was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, close to 1,000 people have gone through Javits. Uh, so it, these were just extraordinary Efforts and acts of mobilization. Which one do you believe? Please. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Jorge Ventura. He's going to say the most important story, talk about the most important story not many people are talking about. That is the violence raging and ravaging our cities. He's seeing it up close, very courageous with the Daily Caller. He's watching the, the hell, which is Portland. He'll be joining us next. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. The bottom line is the COVID virus is temporary. Nobody's leaving the city and giving up their family and giving up everything else because of the COVID virus. They're leaving because they're scared to death, just like they were prior to 1994 when Rudy Giuliani came in to clean it up. And that is Bernie Carrick, former commissioner of the New York Police Department, very much in contact with the Portland Police Department, Seattle as well, uh, and Chicago. Those are the four of the hotbeds that are just, you're watching a city being torn apart. But it's not because people want racial justice, in my view. It's because there's an Antifa crowd here who wants to destroy this country, and they're hiding before, uh, uh, hiding behind uh, this racial unrest. Jorge Ventura joins us now with the Daily Caller. He's the courageous reporter on the ground in Portland, uh, able to tape a lot of this, and so he's able to report firsthand. Jorge, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brian. Jorge, first off, how long have you been in Portland? Uh, so far, I've spent a total of uh, 12 nights. Uh, my first night was uh, one of the first nights where the uh, federal officers were deployed uh, at the uh, courthouse, and we've just been documenting the uh, constant nightly clashes between the huge crowd, federal officers, and Portland police. What's behind this unrest? To be to be honest, it uh, seems like the original message of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement has kind of been tainted uh, by the loss. Um, usually every night starts off with, uh, you know, regular peaceful protests, chants. And as later we get into the night around 11, 12, we have these group of agitators. Um, some are identified as Antifa where they are, you know, dressed all black. They, um, clothing doesn't have any logos. And this crowd will then start to antagonize either the federal officers or Portland police, um, either by doing vandalism on local businesses. We've seen obviously the vandalism at the federal courthouse. We've seen fire started at the federal courthouse, uh, Molotov uh, cocktails and different types of explosives thrown at the uh, federal officers. So it definitely seems like there's a group of agitators and opportunists who have been kind of taking advantage of the civil unrest and uh, just been causing you know, violence and just random criminal activity every single night, over 80 nights now uh, in Portland. What's their motivation? I mean, are they getting paid to do this? Have you been able to talk to them and kind of handle on who's training them, coordinating them? When I'm when I'm on the ground, it seems um, now most of these folks, um, you know, they they know who uh, who we are, so they they don't treat us too kindly. But um, from what I've been talking, the original message has just really been lost. You know, I. Um, some people want to defund the police. Some people want to abolish the police. And then when you talk to the other folks, they actually want to overthrow their whole system. They kind of actually see this as a moment of a revolution. And I think that's something that's not really been, been talked about enough. Uh, so let's talk about this one incident that sticks out. Sadly, it's not the only one. You have this truck driver who is at a 7-Eleven reportedly, and there was a, a trans woman there getting mocked and beaten by these uh, Antifa guys and he decides to stick up for her and then they start going after him and accuse him of trying getting in his car and trying to run them over but that wasn't the case he was just trying to avoid him he gets ripped out of the car and he gets beaten senseless yeah so basically you know I arrived right at the scene um, moments after the uh, the uh, white Ford has crashed into a tree and as soon as I arrive on the scene, the huge crowd has now taken the driver out. Uh, we have now identified the driver as Adam Hanner. And then at, uh, when Adam was taken out, he, uh, you know, he, he didn't put up a, a fight at all. A uh, couple of men started beating him up, a lot of punches, landed straight to the face. And then as soon as he uh, hit the ground, 
uh, a woman came from behind him and then kicked him in the back of the head. Um, Adam, at this point, was already unconscious, and then that's where the uh, viral clip of the uh, suspect in a vest with a uh, with security on it actually named. He comes behind uh, Adam and then gives him the, the big kick, and then a couple of the people continue to to uh, attack Adam. It was uh, very hard to watch in, in person because you just don't know if you're watching, a, you know, a murder kind of go, go down in front of you. You also have people in the crowd yelling at you to stop filming. Um, so kind of, you know, hectic situation. This was around 10 p.m. Um, Sunday night in Portland. Jorge Ventura with us, a daily caller. He's on the ground in Portland with this chaos and this uh, violence. We're the cops. Yeah, there's, there's nowhere to be found. Um, unfortunately, um, I got, uh, according to some sources in, in Portland PD, they have notified me that a lot of these areas are kind of like a no-go zone uh, for cops and for the uh, ambulance. So a lot of these spots, you won't see a lot of police uh, presence. And it took about 20 minutes for uh, police to arrive to, to help Adam to take him to the hospital. But, I mean, by that time, the, the damage was, was, was well done. Uh, the man was already unconscious. Is he Okay. Uh, the latest updates right now, we have uh, to, his brother posted a picture of Adam. He is now home recovering uh, with the injuries. They're, they're non-life-threatening injuries. Um, his his brother, Brian, has actually started a GoFundMe to help out with medical expenses. But that's the, the latest that we have on um, an update on Adam. We are still waiting for the Portland police to finally put out a, an official statement um, with details on, on, the, on the extent of his injuries. Uh, Jorge, what's the reaction? People, if they want racial equality in this country, is this furthering their cause? Uh, absolutely not, Brian. Um, when I was on the ground, I, I was just spent a lot of time just talking to a lot of Portland locals, regular folks, just wanted to see what their opinion was on the you know ongoing civil arrest in their own city. And the majority of the people I talked to actually support uh, police reform. They supported the movement originally, but um, they're saying that the, the violence has really tainted the message and it kind of has, has drawn them away. Uh, one lady, you know, she, she mentioned to me, a, a local lady in Portland, her name is Sally. She mentioned to me that at this point, she's not sure what the demands are. That she, You know, she's willing to hear the other side, but she doesn't know what the demands are. And it seems that, uh, you know, Ted Wheeler really just hasn't really came out and said anything. He hasn't uh, came out and established any, you know, law and order. But at the same time, he hasn't came out and said that he fully on supports a, a defunding. So, um, so far, when I just talked to, you know, everyday folks, regular folks, they have now been kind of been pushed away just from the ongoing violence every single night. Um, you know, we're, we're approaching close to 100 days. 100 days. And, Jorge, I'm shocked that more people aren't concerned. I feel like Fox is the only one concerned about this. Daily Caller, the only one concerned. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of what we've been feeling, too. We've been, uh, you know, traveling around the country doing our, our best that we can just to kind of show folks the civil unrest, what's going on. And I think what's, what's, uh, what thing that we need to pay attention to is, uh, when the, when this type of lawlessness just continues every day, um, these groups continue to grow and, in a way, kind of gain confidence. They uh, we've seen them kind of adjust. Yeah, and they're not going away. Jorge Ventura, thanks so much. Congratulations on your courage. The Daily Call is lucky to have you. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
Later today, I will be signing a full and complete pardon for Susan B. Anthony. She was never pardoned. Did you know that? She was never pardoned. And you know that she got a pardon for a lot of other women, and she didn't put her name on the list. So she was never pardoned. Jane Hampton Cook knows all about this. She's an award-winning writer, best-selling author of uh, nine books, Reliance on Parade, Resilience on Parade right now, short stories from suffragists and women's battle for the vote, uh, which is now out. And how perfect. This is the anniversary of of passing the 19th Amendment, allowing women to vote. I cannot believe it took this long. And I was able to do a special with her for Fox Nation on this very uh, on this very title and this very issue. Jane, first off, your reaction to Susan B. Anthony getting a pardon. Oh, I think that's great. I wrote about when she was arrested and put on trial for voting in the 1872 election. And um, she gave quite a fiery defense of herself, but she refused to pay the $100 fine. And um, and so I'm glad she's getting a pardon because I think it's a great day. Um, this is the ratification day of the 19th Amendment. So it's appropriate action that the president is taking. So, Jane, why did it take so long? You know, I think politics really slowed it down. You know, how often we see sometimes politics politicians do the political thing and not necessarily the right thing. And that can slow down issues like this. And so we see moment after moment when women in New Jersey in 1807 lost the right to vote because of politics. And after the Civil War, the politics didn't favor the women, even though they were promised they would get the right to vote after the Civil War, and they didn't. So we just see that thread really throughout history. And they, they got smart, and they used politics to their advantage, and that that's how we got to this particular day. Yeah, it's amazing, too. It's because it was very much a man's world back then. You know, women were the homemakers. The men was trying to uh, make a living, feed the family. And then little by little, the women began to emerge, not just in America, but around the world. And where was America in this whole women's rights quest? Well, America was a little bit behind. There were other European countries that had given women the right to vote. We weren't certainly at the bottom of the barrel, but we were not leading the way, so to speak. And, and you know, we think about our form of government. We should have been leading the way on this issue. Absolutely. So talk about the battle. For example, right around the, the Civil War, women and African-Americans were on the cusp of gaining the right to vote. And the women ended up having to take a back seat, correct? That's right. They had um, there were some members of Congress that had that were favorable to women getting the right to vote before the Civil War. And those members asked them, hey, you're also abolitionists. Would you gather signatures calling for the end of slavery? And they gathered four hundred thousand signatures. And one of those members of Congress, after after all that, said, no, I'm not going to support women's right to vote. And, you know, they were focused on the end of slavery. And and you have to you can even understand. I mean, African-American freed slave men were being killed, um, and they felt like if they could get them the vote quickly, that would help stop some of what was happening in post-war um, South well, but in the United States. And what happened is women were working so hard to make this happen, they would pick it outside the White House, right? They make Woodrow Wilson's life uh, crazy. They did. You know, they went to him and they 
talked to him about the issue, had many civil conversations, but he told them that he just couldn't do anything, even though his political party, the Democratic Party, controlled both houses of government, and he was a Democrat, he would not put pressure on Congress for the 19th Amendment. So these women responded with nonviolent protests, nothing like we're seeing what we're seeing today. They held signs silently and said, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And that eventually, through going to jail, being abused in jail, when the news got out that these women were being abused in jail, which you and I visited, that jail, they, that's finally when Wilson said, okay, I'll start putting pressure on Congress. And it still took a while. It took a midterm election to um, change um, change the the balance of power toward the Republicans before it got over the finish line. But when it did get over the finish line, you had both Republicans and Democrats supporting suffrage. So it was a bipartisan accomplishment. It's amazing. The men would go home and still and hear from their wives and still not change uh, how they voted, uh, because I guess the people were fearful that if this segment voted, it would hurt one party and help another. Right. Suffragists were trying to get them to understand, look, if you support this, you're going to get an electorate that's doubling the population. You'll get the women's vote in the next election. And then the 1920 presidential candidates figured that out. And Warren Harding was very quick to support women's suffrage in the ratification process. And he was calling. He called the Tennessee legislator that cast the deciding vote, Harry Byrne. Warren Harding called him and said, hey, support the amendment. And Byrne was against He signaled that he was against the amendment, but when there was a procedural vote and it was tied, he changed his vote and he passed the deciding vote, and he did so to honor his mother. So so it was a a close vote in the end. It wasn't even unanimous. I would think by the time it came up, they'd realize the error of their ways, the folly of the delay. Yeah, well, and you know, some of them, some of them were just short-sighted. Um, Harry Burns' mentor was in the Senate in Tennessee, and he gave this bitter speech, and he was mad because in in his district, women were allowed to vote for mayor, and they voted against him. And he was so for him, it was personal voting against the amendment was personal. It was sort of a vendetta. Um, but yeah, it was close. It was um, down to the wire, and it was tied. And it was one 23-year-old legislator. Mm-hmm who said, I'm going to honor my mother. I want her to have the right to vote. She's an employer. She can't vote, but her employees can. And so he cast that deciding vote today, uh, 100 years ago today. And uh, that's how we ratified the 19th Amendment. Jane Hampton Cook with us, a very uh, respected historian, author of Resilience on Parade, short story from suffragists and women's battle for the vote. Jane, on another note, we talked about American history. Uh, well, now it's under attack. George Washington's statue is just under attack. They finally charged somebody that defiled it, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, as well as all the Confederate statues. They're being voted on or just ripped down. What's your reaction to all this? Well, it's it's been very upsetting to me to see all of this happen because it tells me that people don't know their history and that they don't have a perspective that's healthy, frankly. We have to look at the good in our history and celebrate that and learn from the bad. And um, there was a line in a Hallmark movie that I watched recently that really fits this. It's, I choose to embrace the things from my past that made me strong, and I let go of the things that held me back. And I think that's a good model for what, the way we should look at history. We shouldn't forget the bad things, but we should learn from them and not let them hold us back. And tearing down statues 
that's holding us back. That's not healthy. And I'd love to see us get to a healthier place. Gotcha. Jane Hampton Cook, congratulations on the book on this special day. I uh, appreciate it. It's always, and thanks so much for your help on the Fox Nation feature. Yes, um, everyone that's watched it loves it. So if you haven't seen it, go to Fox Nation and watch What Made American Great. Yes, I knew the star of it, and I used your book as a reference. Uh, Resilience (laughs) on Parade. Pick it up. Thanks, Jane. Thank you so much. You got it. Uh, We come back. I'm going to be going to the Stuart Varney, uh, go on with Stuart Varney on FBN. But I do have a minute, and I'd like to go to Matt, listen, 92.3 MNC, Oh, excuse me, uh, in North Carolina. Hey, Matt. Hello, Brian. How are you? Good. Um, nice to talk to you again. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, what, was the name, what was the name of Trey Gowdy's book? It sounds pretty good if I ever get out of this place and get a book. Uh, let me see. I, mean, I just had it right here. Uh, Trey Gowdy's book. I, I had put that down in the previous hour, but I got it now. It is called Don't, It Doesn't Hurt to Ask, Using the Power of Questions to Communicate, Connect, and Persuade. You will love it. What's on your mind? Uh, well... Last night with Michelle Obama's speech, speech, which I told your call screener, she, of course, she very professionally asked me what I want to talk about. It was so insane, even my cat got mad. I had to leave the room, thought I was going to vomit, and called Jim Bohannon over it. And he said, listen to your cat. Well, I will say this. Uh, she had a lot of inaccuracies. She painted her husband's eight years as a time in which the world embraced us and the country got along. That is not true. Look at China. Look at Russia. Look at the rest of the Middle East outside Iran. Look at Israel. you got to be kidding. Look at the money that is poured in for NATO, the fortification uh, of that alliance, the more troops that are now there. And then Poland. Please tell me that uh, if Poland's relations are better with us now or President Obama. So she simplified everything like you do at a pep rally. That's what it was without an audience. But thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. Listen, we're going to get some more calls up. But next, I'm going to go on FBN, Fox Business Network, uh, with Stuart Varney. Uh, we're going to talk about getting the kids back to school, what's it going to take, and the violence that's overtaking Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and New York. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, we'll be with him just shortly. We'll be talking about getting trying to get back to schools. That's what I think everybody's approach is. And also talk about, on Stuart Varney's show, uh, what's going on in Portland. Uh, Seattle's just as bad. I had one cop quit on camera. He was caught on camera uh, getting confronted by the protesters, and he said, you know what? You win. I quit, hopped in his car and drove away. They don't feel like they're supported at all by management. And now you have Portland, the same thing. The violence is getting brutal, ruthless. I don't know who who these callous killers are, but we're getting very close to that. Uh, so I don't know if you need a mayor, police chief, or you need the National Guard in there to end three months of unrest. And But right after that, I'll take your call. So get on the air, one 408 7669 so let's listen in. 10.51, 3, 2, 1, bang, there it is, 10.51, on the dot, 
You know what that means? Brian Kilmeade, host of The Brian Kilmeade Show, is with us now. Look, Brian, I want to start with back to school. In my opinion, the vast majority of youngsters will not get in-person, in-classroom education for the rest of this calendar year. I think that's a tragedy. Do you see any way around this? Well, I mean, look, in Mississippi, they were all back to school, 300,000. Uh, in New York, they had about 200,000 want a hybrid model. Now it went up 40 more thousand, I guess, over the last two days. People getting a little queasy about it. I think there's a lot of states that did it. In New York, where famously we've bent the curve, we're below 1%. We've got a hybrid version in high school in my town. And then you have zero to sixth grade, kindergarten to sixth grade, uh, go pretty much four or five times a week. So we're getting there. I think both schools have to design, make the protocols, right? you got to walk in. Even if you have to use a foot pedal for a hand washer, you make sure they do it. You do these things. And then prepare for them to test positive. How do you do it when there's a positive test? Get the parents ready. There's going to be kids that test positive. Most of them are going to be asymptomatic. You're not going to know until you fail a test. I'm also heartened by the saliva test. Get a quick result. The NBA started it. Quick result. You don't need the uh, you don't need the swab. You don't need the reagent. You don't need the lab. So okay. I think, I think that could help schools. You're more positive than I am. I think it's chaotic, quite frankly, and I think I just don't know how schools and well, teachers and parents can plan for this. You're not, you're not going to believe just this. Up in the air. In my school, my daughter told me they're giving everybody plexiglass. And they're walking around the halls with plexiglass. Do you believe that? No, I don't. But I do from you. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not joking. I, that, I found that incredible, quite frankly. Yeah. Desperation, indeed. All right, Brian, I've got to talk to you about this. Did you see Joe Biden uh, went to, did an interview with Cardi B? Yes. Uh, so my question following that is, when will Joe ever get out of his basement and do serious interviews with serious journalists? He's actually interviewing with Lynn manuel Miranda today, uh, he wrote Hamilton. So this is unbelievable. I know. Hey, he will sit down with Bill Muir with Kamala Harris on Friday, not 60 Minutes. And I think 60 Minutes would have done more of a comprehensive thing. He probably would have had some awkward moments, but more than likely, very few. I don't mind doing the niche interview. If you, you have to broaden your mind out and get, try to get the younger demographic. It's why the president sat down with Barstool's president. Get it. But you know what the president also does? Sits down with Chris Wallace does us for an hour, Jonathan Swan of Axios in between, takes on all comers, creates a lot of news, exactly. makes some exactly. technically some mistakes. But look what yeah. he did yesterday. Look what he did yesterday, Stuart. He was asked by Cardi B, hey, what, I want free college. He goes, I'm going to give you free college. What? You, you, you're getting just like that. I'm giving you free college. She goes, I want Medicare for all. She goes, okay. So I'm saying to myself, did he just okay Medicare for all and free college uh, because a rapper asked him to? I mean, that's got to make his handlers so nervous to sit down with the likes of Stuart Varney. Well, or the likes of Brian Kilmeade or anybody else on, on, on a, at Fox. But, uh, look, I've, I've just got a limited time, Brian, but I really want to get this in. I'm going to show our audience what I think is disturbing video from Portland. You can see a man on the ground there, pulled out of his pickup truck, beaten by protesters. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. It's, it's grim, and it is frankly disgusting. What do you make of this? Well, I've, I've talked to two people involved directly with this. We just hung up with the Daily Caller reporter who recorded some of that video. Yeah. Turns out he's in the hospital. He was picked up. When he was picked up by cops, 20 minutes later, he was still unconscious. So he was being a hero, I understand it. He was at a 7-Eleven trying to protect somebody who was being harassed, who's uh, transgender. And when he did that, 
They looked at him and tried to beat him up. He says, I'm just trying to help. He hopped in his car, and he's trying to avoid them. In that, he made himself susceptible. They ripped him out of the car and beat him senseless. They tried to say he was trying to run them over. Not true. But if I was him, I would have run him over. Because these people are thugs. They're the worst society has, and they need to be stopped. I asked Jim Clyburn that this morning. Why don't you separate racial, people going for racial justice, and those who just want to kill and destroy America and its cities? Gee, I wonder if any of this will be ever mentioned in the virtual Democrat convention. I think it will not. Because that's a turn-off and big-time turn-off. Hey, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. All we right. always appreciate it. See you again soon. Stuart, like. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. James, listening online in New Hampshire. Hey, James. Hey, how's it going, Brian? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a situation that uh, Massachusetts has now run into. Uh, I happen to uh, work in Massachusetts, work for a company that's based out of Massachusetts. And uh, due to the COVID, of course, myself and many, many New Hampshire people like me have been working from home out of New Hampshire. And Massachusetts has realized how much tax revenue they're going to lose from people who no longer have been working in the state. And they're trying to retroactively go back and change their tax laws so that they can continue taxing those of us who no longer work in the state, but whose company is based in the state. Nuts. So our governor, yeah, our governor, John Sununu, and the Department of Justice are now filing complaints to try to stop Massachusetts from taxing New Hampshire residents. Chris Sununu, right? Uh, uh, but um, I, I can't believe that. But they're trying to do it in California, too. They're trying to tax people after they leave California because people are running from these states that make your, their lives miserable and try to take all the money that you're working for. That is incredible to me, and my hope is that that does not uh, that that does not succeed because New York will be right behind Massachusetts, California will be there, New Jersey, horribly run states, uh, taxed through the nose, where people are evacuating. Uh, so that is absolutely awful. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com, pick up Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, or Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, or Andrew Jackson, Miracle of New Orleans. A way to push back on the war on history. And if it goes to my local bookstore, I'll be able to sign it, personalize it, and send it. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Well, now we got on track for you today, coming to you from New York City, heard around the world, certainly around the country. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor to the President, will be with us in 15 minutes. Bottom of the hour, esteemed true moderate Harold Ford Jr., former congressman from Tennessee. We'll talk about day one of the sedate, not live, most on tape, DNC, where almost nobody was actually in Milwaukee and one of the finest American soccer players ever, Christy Rampone, will be joining us, three-time Olympic medalist, two-time World Cup champion uh, from New Jersey. Uh, he's got a brand-new book out called Be All In, Raising Kids for Success in Sports and, more importantly, in Life. So let's get to the big three before we get to Eric Trump. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Tell me what your 
fans. What, what are they most concerned about? Free uh, college education, free Medicare. People don't want to pay the taxes for it. And that's why this whole thing about government's bad has been such a, a, a downer. Another day, another media pass from Biden. No speeches, no questions, no interviews. I'm sorry, there was an interview with rapper Cardi B in a heavily edited, tedious give and take where you guessed it. Joe has surprised everybody by saying, hey, you know what? Medicare for all might not be a bad idea. And free college is a guarantee. And guess what? Hard hitting interview is up next for Biden. Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda. You can't make it up. Number two. The bottom line is the COVID virus is temporary. Nobody's leaving the city and giving up their family and giving up everything else because of the COVID virus. Right. They're leaving because they're scared to death, just like they were prior to 1994. Because of the violence, American cities are burning with rage. There's only one cure. Empower law enforcement in Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and especially New York. We are all hurtling towards points of no return. Number one. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. That is Michelle Obama. Night one, done at the DNC. We'll review the theme coming together and how bad Donald Trump is, according to them. We heard no plans, waited 30 minutes before Joe Biden's name came up while hearing way too much about Bernie Sanders and confused conservative John Kasich. We'll preview day number two. And we'll do it with Eric Trump. Eric, uh, he is the executive vice president of the Trump Organization. Got his hands full there. Also trying to get his dad four more years. Eric, welcome back. Hey, Brian. It's great to be on. Hey, Eric. You know, last time I saw you during the DNC, it was four years ago. And we were in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And it was an old dilapidated gym, and it was packed to the rafters. And the president was trailing by the same amount. And you basically texted me and said, see what I'm talking about? He you know, Basically, he can't lose, and he didn't. And he didn't lose Pennsylvania, even though he was trailing by technically, I guess, nine points in the polls. Do you have a similar feeling, or does this feel different? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that we were together in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, where, where obviously the, the DNC was supposed to be last time. Right now I'm driving into Milwaukee. I'm, I'm driving on uh, – I-94, and there's Trump signs. I just passed three different Trump signs, the big ones, like the four-by-eight billboards, and I'm, I'm telling you, and you and I have talked about this a hundred times, Brian, you know, what they say on TV versus what you see when you're actually out there in real America, they're two different things. And I, you and I had this conversation yep. a million times. I go, Brian, I'm, I'm watching TV, and it doesn't compute with what I see in my own eyes when, I, when I'm doing hundreds of thousands of travel miles across all these different swing states where you see the banners and you see the posters and you see the barns painted in red, white, and blue, where you literally had a family that probably spent a week on ladders painting a barn Trump 2020. I mean, those people are clearly getting out to vote. And we're seeing the same enthusiasm. Actually, Brian, I might, it, truthfully, we might be seeing more enthusiasm this time because the first time my father was running against incompetence, right? He was running against, you know, a uh, horrible economy and, you know, people that were giving $150 billion to Iran and, you know, absolute craziness. Now you look at the Democratic Party and they're unrecognizable. I mean, Let's defund law enforcement. Let's let's get rid of all law enforcement. Let's let anarchy, you know, reign. Let's you see what's happening to cops in Portland, where you know people are shining lasers in their eyes, they're blinding law enforcement officers. There, Biden wants to lift taxes by four trillion dollars. So, eighty-two percent of Americans, eighty-two percent of Americans would have a large tax increase under right. And then you see these proposals. Kamala Harris, you know, she wants socialized health care. She wants to strip one hundred eighty million 
private health care plans, um, you know, out of this country. She wants to give free health care to all illegal but, immigrants. She wants to get but here's your, your challenge, amendment. She wants, and I know you're going to be I mean, in Milwaukee it, today. Here's your challenge. You don't know what the true agenda is because Joe Biden says he doesn't want to end fracking. He says he doesn't want Medicare for all. Uh, you had Kamala Harris say, yeah, I'm, I got to amend that. We should have private insurance. She does want to end fracking. She does want to decriminalize the border. But they say, well, it's Joe Biden's deal. But why is Bernie Sanders so enthusiastic for something that would be a moderate as he's being portrayed? Cut through that. Because Biden will do absolutely anything they tell him to do. I don't even think Biden knows what he's talking about, to tell you the truth. I don't, I don't think he knows what he's saying half the time. And I'm not trying to say that to, to sound mean. But he'll, he flaps in the wind. They all do. I mean, listen, Kamala Harris was calling him a racist three months ago, and now all of a sudden she's, she's more than happy to, to run with him. You know, you had that great exchange where, you know, you opposed busing and, you know, and, and she called him a racist, and now she's happy to run with him. I mean, the, the point is these people will do whatever is expedient at the time for their political career. They'll say anything. They'll do anything. Remember a couple months ago Kamala Harris was saying that she believed – Biden's, you know, um, you know, uh, sexual assault accusers. You know, I believe those women. Those women should be heard. Now she's willing to stand on the stage and run with them like nothing, right. nothing ever happened. These people, Brian, are phony. And, you know, wh- whether or not you love my father or, or not, the one thing you can say is it's not that he's not direct. He's the most direct person in the entire world, and he did everything he said he would do. And frankly, he's done more. And, and, and that's what you get from a non-politician. These people are just so full of, I can't say it, they're, they're full of, Nothing. Right. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame to see. You don't know what you're going to get from these people. But uh, you better believe that the radical, uh, you know, the radical left is radical left. They do want defund right. police. They do I, want, I want to you raise to your taxes. They now, do, Michelle, they do want to get rid of your religion, your guns and everything else. All right. Here's what Michelle Obama, a little bit of what Michelle Obama said last night. It was all about pretty much your dad not being up to it. Cut three. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. So she's getting getting big high grades for this speech. Did you watch it? What do you think? I, I did, and I thought I thought the whole thing was incredible, to tell you the truth. So so let's just let's go to the economy for one second. So uh, in the eight years of Obama and Biden, the Dow went up by about four thousand points. In the three and a half years of my father, the Dow's gone up by twelve thousand points. Which means he's not up to it. Obama was one of the most corrupt presidents in in U.S. history. You, you know, she, she was saying last night, you know, uh, we have to go high. We have to go high. I mean, here you have Kamala Harris calling law enforcement officers, comparing them to the the KKK. Here you have her husband whose administration spied on my father's campaign, you're seeing, and, and now people are going to jail for it, but you're seeing FBI agents, the top people at the FBI, altering and changing emails, uh, issuing FISA warrants, you know, putting out fake dossiers, um, you know, spying on campaigns, um, you know, trying to entrap my father, trying to set up people, right. trying to get people to perjure themselves. He might have been the most crooked politician in, in, in U.S. history, who had the slowest recovery coming out of a depression. I mean, we had you know, 0.9% GDP growth. Mm. You know this better than anybody, Brian. I mean, at certain points during the Obama administration, we had 10, 11% unemployment. Like, I, I really don't want to hear it from her that he's not up to, uh, up to the task when, you know, they were the administration that was giving $150 billion away to Iran, a country that absolutely hates our guts, including $1.8 billion that was being flown over in cargo planes 
I mean, Obama showed up to China. You'll remember the scene very well. You covered it. You know, you're probably the only one that covered it. But uh, Obama showed up to China. They didn't even take a staircase out to Air Force One. The guy walked out the emergency hatch on the back of Air Force One. No red carpet, no marching bands. You know, no one was there to meet him. I mean, that's what the world thought of gotcha. the United States under Obama. I don't, I don't even want to hear her nonsense. Uh, Eric, so uh, you're going to be in Milwaukee today, so you guys going to start your, your, pretty much you and your dad and everybody else starting the ground game. Uh, I know you, uh, Laura, your wife, has been in, uh, been in the bus, so it's, you're going to be knocking on doors. Yeah, well, we're going to be in Milwaukee today. We figured, um, listen, the, the, the DNC was going to happen there, and, and no one even showed up to the state. Uh, remember, Hillary Clinton made the same mistake when she didn't go to Wisconsin and she didn't go to Michigan, she didn't go to Pennsylvania, she didn't go to a whole lot of other states. But, uh, you know, so if uh, if no one from the Democratic Party is willing to go to Milwaukee, I figured I may as well. Huh. So I'm going to be here all day. And my father was there uh, yesterday, and um, we're actually getting a major law enforcement. I'm, I'm accepting it on behalf of my father, but— uh, He's getting a major law enforcement, gotcha. um, you know, a, a award and uh, endorsement, and um, it's going to be a great day. Uh, Eric Trump, thanks so much. Best of luck. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Robert O'Brien's coming up next, a national security advisor to the president, and then Harold Ford Jr. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From his mouth to to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. He has tried to prevent people from voting undermined the U.S. Postal Service, deployed the military and federal agents against peaceful protesters, threatened to delay the election, and suggested that he will not leave office if he loses. I know about politics and rhetoric, but that was a little out of control. Senator Bernie Sanders making wild accusations on the president, which was to a welcome audience at the the virtual DNC. Joining us now, Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor to the president. Thanks so much, uh, Robert. Appreciate you joining us. Hey, Brian. Great to be with you. First off, how are you feeling? You 100 percent? Yeah, I'm 100 uh, percent. I was uh, very, very blessed and uh, was able to get over the COVID very quickly. But, uh, you know, having had it, my heart goes out to the folks that have had a tougher time. And we've, we've lost a lot of Americans to it. So my uh, my condolences are with the people, the families have lost loved ones and uh, for the people who have been through this. But fortunately, uh, my family and I are doing uh, doing well. Good. Uh, Bernie Sanders came out and says you're trying to affect the voting, trying to take voting machines away, sorters away. Uh, you heard all that. Delay the whole election. Where are, do you stand right now with these mail-in ballots? Can you stop the states from doing this? Well, listen, voting voting is uh, is supervised by the states, by the 50 secretary of states. We put you know hundreds of millions of dollars, something no other administration has ever done. Uh, into hardening our election infrastructure. Most of my focus is on foreign interference in the election, whether it be from China or Iran or Russia or Venezuela or Cuba. Uh, But these mail-in ballots, uh, as the president said, if they're absentee ballots and and, uh, signatures can be verified and and the infrastructure is there to handle it, that's great. Uh, I'm always concerned about, you know, rushed plans uh, and, uh, and plans that aren't well thought out that 
you know, even one of our foreign adversaries could take advantage of these boxes of ballots that are showing up at, at various apartment complexes and that sort of thing for people that moved five years earlier. So we've got to keep an eye on it. We've got to be careful about it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the Secretary of State's backed up by the Department of Homeland Security uh, and uh, and some of our folks at the NSC that will make sure there's a free and fair election, which is the foundation of our democracy. you got a bunch of things on your plate. The one thing I want to talk to you about is uh, you changing policies to a degree on the, our own hemisphere, where the Monroe Doctrine famously was written, hey, stay out of here, stay out of our backyard, but didn't stop Russia and China and Iran from getting their hooks into uh, Venezuela and years ago Fidel Castro taking Cuba. What is the philosophy here? Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. I just got back, as you know, with a, a high-level uh, delegation that, that went to Panama and Colombia yesterday. Uh, we've unveiled a new White House framework for uh, a strategic framework for the hemisphere because the president realizes, especially in the light of the COVID virus, uh, how important it is for us to have great relations with our neighbors. And that, that framework basically you know, is, is secure our homeland promote economic growth in America, but also uh, in our neighbors. So, you know, we'll, we'll do onshoring. We'll try and bring American companies back from China to America, uh, but also nearshoring so that uh, uh, our, our neighbors, uh, whether it's Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, or, or our, our foreign neighbors, uh, can be part of our supply chain here in the Western Hemisphere where we can trust them and we can get deliveries in the time of a crisis. We want to bring democracy and rule of law, and, and we're, in a, we're having a renaissance uh, in the Americas right now, uh, with the exception of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, the entire hemisphere is made up of free democratic countries, and they're looking to President Trump for leadership. And uh, and then getting to your your question, uh, we want to counter the foreign malign influence that's uh, that's coming in from China, from Russia, and Iran. Uh, they're focused in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. They're, they'd like to get their hooks into other countries in the hemisphere. I think we've got something great to offer. I mean, when, when we delivered 50 ventilators yesterday to Panama, the outpouring of, of uh, gratitude from the Panamanian people and from their leadership to President Trump was really fantastic. And I think the countries in the, in the area realize that we're a good partner, that we're not looking for something for them. We're not looking to change their government. We're not looking to, to steal their natural resources or or, or bring mm-hmm. our nationals in to, to colonize their countries. So we've got a great story to tell with our Latin American and Western Hemisphere partners, and we're doing it, and, and, and they sure appreciate President Trump's leadership. What's the deal with Venezuela? I know we intercepted the Iranian ships. We're breaking the embargo on uh, Venezuela. We have them in Texas. What could you tell me about those ships? And do you get concerned that they're going to try to reciprocate by grabbing ours or allies' ships going through the Persian Gulf? Well, I think the Iranians have learned their lesson during the Trump administration that uh, that taking on the United States is probably not in their interest. Uh, what we're doing is trying to protect the people of Venezuela. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about socialism and utopia and, and how great a socialist country would be. Uh, Venezuela was the richest per capita country in, in South America. It's blessed with tremendous reserves of oil, with gold, with natural resources. Uh, and the people of Venezuela are now picking through garbage dumps, trying to find enough food to eat, and they're, they're making a few cents a day. And, and, and that's the fruits of socialism. That's what you, if you want to see, if, you, if young people listening to your show want to see what socialism, mm-hmm. how it ends up, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, all they have to do is turn to, to Venezuela and see that. But, but Robert, if it wasn't for Russia, they would be, they would, the, the Maduro would be out of there by now. If it wasn't for Cuba, well, how, do we, how do we break this deadlock while the people suffer? Well, listen, we've got maximum pressure on them. And as you know, we've sanctioned Rosneft, the Russian oil company that was doing business with uh, uh, with Venezuela. And we've, we've sanctioned them very substantially. We're trying to get the Russians uh, out of, uh, um, you know, out of Venezuela. We're, we're intercepting gas that's coming to Venezuela. 
Uh, we're doing freedom of navigation operations, and, and we're doing a number of other things that I can't talk about. But uh, we're also supporting the Democratic people of Venezuela. President Trump invited President Juan Guaido, the interim president of Venezuela, who's represented, uh, it was recognized by 60 countries around the world to the State of the Union. And that was one of the few bipartisan moments that the State of the Union, you recall, when the entire Congress got up to applaud President Trump's guest, uh, Juan Guaido. And so we're going to continue to support him diplomatically and uh, and try and thwart efforts by Maduro to uh, uh, to, to stage a sham election to, to remove Guaido. Uh, when people say that our relations with our allies have gone down over the last three and a half years, and that was the narrative last night with Michelle Obama, what do you say, Robert O'Brien? You know, it's just not true. <clears throat> the reality is our relation with our allies was, was terrible uh, when we came into office. The, the Middle East was a mess. Uh, the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration, had spent much of their time. They, they believed that Iran was going to be the future great ally of the United States, and we saw how that turned out. Uh, we're rebuilding our alliances with the Gulf states, uh, with Israel. That, that's one of the things that led to this historic UAE-Israel Accord, that the Abraham Accords that took place mm-hmm. uh, la- last week. We've got great relations in South America. I mean, the, the, the level of respect and gratitude and, uh, and admiration that President Ivan Duque of Colombia has for Trump or for President Trump or that uh, uh, President Cortizo in Panama has for President Trump is really spectacular. Uh, President Bolsonaro in Brazil is a close friend. So we're doing great with our allies. We just signed a, a historic uh, basin agreement. Uh, Secretary Pompeo was in Poland. So. I just signed a historic basin agreement with the Poles. And remember, during the Obama-Biden administration, uh, they pulled out of Poland. They, they pulled missile defenses out of Poland and Romania. So what we've spent three and a half years rebuilding That's a counter-narrative. Yeah. Robert, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Harold Ford next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Our campaign ended several months ago, but our movement continues and is getting stronger every day. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical are now mainstream. There are Republicans and independents who couldn't imagine crossing over to support a Democrat. They fear Joe may turn sharp left and leave them behind. I don't believe that because I know the measure of the man. It's reasonable, faithful, respectful. And you know, no one pushes Joe around. So who's right? Bernie Sanders, the socialist, who says the, the mainstream is going to be way to the left? Or Kasich, who says the, pre, uh, the vice president's going to stay right in the middle? Joining us now, a guy who I think is right in the middle, Carol Ford, the last of a dying breed, a moderate Democrat, former congressman from Tennessee, now in New York, uh, and chairman of the RX Saver. RX Saver. Harold, welcome back. Brian, thanks for having me. Good morning. Hey, what's, who's right, Sanders or Kasich? Uh, both of them are right. I, I think that politically, last night, Bernie Sanders uh, delivered the most important address for uh, Joe Biden for a lot of the obvious reasons. He basically gave permission slips to those who supported him, who did not support Hillary Clinton four years ago, to go out and support Joe Biden. And I think critically for Joe Biden, it, it made clear that he put his foot down, that he would not be for Medicare for all. You didn't hear Sanders suggest that in any way, suggest that there were differences between the two of them, which 
some who may want to suggest that Joe Biden is some uh, unrealistic uh, leftist. Uh, Bernie Sanders put that to rest. John Kasich's uh, uh, you know, appearance at the convention was important to basically give permission slips to modern independent Republicans in those key battleground states, including John's home state of Ohio. I served in Congress with John Kasich. I know him. I like him. I respect him. I saw some of the criticism he got from some, including some Democrats. And I would remind people that during the arc of your political life, you're allowed to have changed views or, or allowed, you're allowed to have your views change as long as you can explain and defend it. That's the beauty of being a living human being. That's the beauty of being a, a child of God is that you are endowed with the ability to think and change your mind. So I applaud Sanders and I applaud Kasich. I thought the rest of the night was fine. It was a little strange uh, to watch it virtually like that. I have to admit I didn't make it through the whole night. I fell asleep before all of it ended. Um, but I, I think some of the coverage you guys gave this morning on Fox and Friends, you know, a lot of it was right. Some of, a lot of it I agreed with. Some of it I didn't agree with. But overall, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good night for Democrats. I do think they're going to have to switch a little bit and be a little more positive, and lay out a little more affirmatively how they're going to help the main, how we're going to help right. Main Street Americans and middle class Americans. See, uh, okay, um, good points. New York Times reporter Asteed Herndon said, "Not a policy." Uh, not a policy in sight, just vibes. Washington Post reporter James Honan says it feels like we're watching a national Zoom meeting. Uh, uh, progressive journalist <laughs> David Pakman says, someone please talk me off the ledge. I want to win. In the first 22 minutes of the DNC, I am scared. Can someone tell me how great this is or something? So, and there's other people watching. Josh Rogan says, the cheesy physios that used to be part of the space fillers in the convention have now become the convention. So, there's people that, that seemingly want uh, the Democrats to win. I don't know how the Republicans are going to counter it. It's going to be virtual. But the thing is, Harold, I'll drill down on this. You say people can change. But, but Kasich is not changing, and Sanders is not changing. And it kind of surprised me when Joe Biden told rapper Cardi B that he's paying for college. I had no idea he was paying for college. Look, when I say people can change, I mean that people can have different thoughts and different views and different circumstances present them with, uh, you know, chances to rethink and, and revisit things. I think that's the beauty of being, again, a living human being that's educated and endowed with freedom. That's that's really what we fight for and have won wars for in this country. Uh, I didn't watch the Cardi B interview. I, I probably would not have advised the vice president to do that interview before. Uh, doing some other interviews, including with Fox and with, with Brett Baer and Chris Wallace and others, uh, including with Fox and Friends with you guys uh, in the morning. Um, but to, to your earlier point, if you if you maintain that position, Brian, that people don't change, then it's hard to argue that Joe Biden is some out of the mainstream liberal. I mean, he has been right down the middle of the road uh, in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. I would argue in the mainstream of the country politician for, for four decades uh, in fact, he's been criticized by some in the party for some of his views back in the 90s. My father was in Congress for 22 years. He supported the crime bill that that uh, and my father's African-American and, and the, the same bill that Joe Biden takes a lot of credit for. My dad was instrumental uh, in the House. And at that moment, it was a different time we were living. And there were some things in that bill that my dad agrees with still to this day and some things he wishes that it would be changed, which is that we could change, which I'm sure that Joe Biden does as well. So that's what I mean by you hope people can review the facts, look at look at situations and walk away from those situations with a different plan of attack or a different plan, different approach based on how circumstances may change. And, and that's the confidence I have in Joe Biden. And 
And frankly, one of the reasons that I, I do hope he does sit down with, with, with Fox and with ABC and CNN and MSNBC well, and all the others to do the, to do the real tough and hard-hitting interviews, because I think he'll do fine. All right. So, but Congressman, I, I think would, what I think we're, what we're missing each other is if he's not the guy from the 90s and he's not the guy from 2008 to 2016, because the guy that he ran with now wants to get rid of the filibuster, Barack Obama, and then the people that are now supporting him on the Bernie Sanders side want Medicare for all. They want the new Green Deal. They want to decrim. They want to take the wall down. Uh, they want. Uh, they also actually want free college. We know that. So he is winning. They they say they're a board, and that makes a lot of people nervous. That think he's a moderate. Then you have a conservative doing that. And AOC is given a minute at the convention. So that's a mixed signal because she was one of his advisors when he's uh, as, as he uh, locked up the nomination. So people wondering what Joe Biden we're seeing now. Because the thing is, he has not said to fund the police. He said, I'll redirect funding. And he has not condemned the the violence that we've seen or Antifa. I thought last night would have been a great time for Michelle Obama to say, I'm in for racial justice, but I'm not for Antifa. And I just think that you see a re- remarkable silence about Portland, Seattle, New York, and Chicago. I agree with you. I, I, I am chagrined and, and, and frankly surprised that there have not been more voices and maybe a voice last night that would have done that. But let's be clear. Joe Biden does not support defunding the police. He does not support Medicare for all. Uh, he does not support most of what uh, Bernie Sanders ran on. In fact, the reason they ran against one another is because they have different views on what the world should look like. But let me not give short trip to your point about the violence in some of these cities. It is – let me be clear to, to any and every politician of whatever background, black lives matter. And if you believe in that, then you have to support reforming the police, not defunding the police, because the neighborhoods in, in many ways that are crying out for protection and crying out for new investments and crying out for new jobs and better education, unfortunately – uh, and uh, oftentimes have a larger percentage of people who are black and brown. I wish that were not a reality, but unfortunately it is. And for anyone who believes that we shouldn't be fighting for those things versus defending looters and thugs and criminals, and I've been most warm, my heart has been most warm when I've seen um, residents of communities across the country, including in Seattle, black residents, I think in Seattle and Portland, actually try to push and urge these people and these organizations, whomever they may be, to leave their neighborhoods because whatever – all these things they're doing are undermining uh, the larger efforts, the more noble efforts of those who wish to see right. smart police reforms and see greater investments in communities and see improved schools. Exactly. And, and see from these other things, they, they serve no purpose. So I, I'm, I agree with you, Brian, and, and others who share the view. I hope that we hear a voice, some voices, if not a cacophony of voices, that – that say that. But at the same time, we need to be honest. Joe Biden is not for defunding the police and he's not for Medicare for all. OK, just so you know, he will if when he tells that to black voters, urban black voters, they're not going to be happy with that. Uh, so he's he got to come up and own up to that. that. But I want you to hear when he says, I'm not for defunding the police. He's going to lose. But, urban, but I, disagree. I don't think urban black voters are for defunding the police. They're for reforming the police. Did you tell the people of Minneapolis that? Did you tell Seattle that? Did you tell Portland that? That's all they're saying. Know, Their liberal right, mayors aren't liberal enough for them. 
but I know a lot of black people, and I don't know many black people who want to see the police departments defunded. I don't know. I don't know many black people at all who don't want when something terrible, unfortunately, may happen that they can't pick up the telephone and call the police. So, I mean, again, this is not a racial issue to me. But, this is this is an issue of fairness and an but, issue. But of justice. Congressman, I think there's something going on beyond our grasp. And for three months in Portland and Seattle, maybe there's we just no don't know. There's something beyond the people. I don't know people that want to destroy the country. Every single day for three months. But I want you to hear what Mayor de Blasio said is the reason why New York is struggling. Listen. The sad reality is no one has done more to set back New York City than Donald Trump because he failed New York City and he failed America with his handling of the coronavirus. If we had had presidential leadership, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. So, yeah, New York City is dealing with some tough times. And guess what? A former New Yorker helped bring it to us by failing to address the crisis staring us in the face. Your witness. Look, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I find the leadership of Mayor de Blasio at times at times lacking. And there's some truth to what he's saying uh, regarding the, the lack of national leadership around the COVID response. But I live in New York and I can tell you that it, it, the city is changing. I still have great hope and confidence and believe in the resiliency of the city. And we will come back. Uh, but the, the, the blame game in politics is a, has a long history to it, and, and it probably won't stop with, with me condemning one side or the other. Uh, but what I do know is we need leaders now in New York to stand up uh, and talk about not only the issues of crime, but the issues of opportunity and the issues of how do we bridge, find a bridge from where we are now uh, to the point where we want to be. I read a, a, an interesting piece this morning uh, that a friend sent me uh, that touted how you know we're at a point in the city's arc uh, in history where there are those who are down down who are down on the city and those who want to leave the city maybe you let those people leave and those of us who want to stay and rebuild it uh, and want to re- have a reconstitute and more importantly a reimagined city this may be the time for that to happen but we need leadership and leadership does not always criticize leadership is also thinking and challenging right. and plotting and finding ways to help us get to a better point and i hope yeah. that that's the kind of leadership that emerges in New York City in the future. Right. Nonstop criticism, uh, criticism of people who are rich and successful and pay 50 percent of the, the top 1 percent, pay 50 percent of the taxes at least. And they've been told to hit the road by this mayor, not the governor. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Congress. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we've got day two, day three, day four, and then the whole RNC. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, we come back. Uh, one of the finest athletes in this uh, in the country uh, who is a longtime captain of the U.S. women's national team. From New Jersey, Christy Rampone in our brand new book in just a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. After 16 Long years, they flew north to put America back on top of the soccer world, and they did it in style. It was a victory that took all 23 players. Uh, it took Christy Rampone's leadership. It means drawing the largest TV audience for a soccer match, men or women's, in American history. It means wearing our nation's crest on your jersey, taking yourself and your country to the top of the world. That's what American women do. That's what American girls do. That's why we celebrate this team. And that's why you have to go out and get Christy Rampone's book. It's called Be All In, Raising Kids for Success in Sports and Life, three-time Olympic champion, two-time World Cup champion, and co-author of that book. And how great, because kids are going back to school that aren't going to play on the national team. Kids are going to be playing sports, and we're told to take off for five months. 
And now coming back, Christy, in the beginning, it looked like your timing was bad. Now I think it's perfect. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. So what is your advice to parents now that you're a coach, a parent, a Mm -hmm. parent coach, basketball and soccer? What's your advice to parents listening right now as their kids get back in the field? Yeah, just to be aware that their kids will not be the same player they were when they left and that it's going to be a process to build back to who they were. You know, we definitely had an interruption, like you said, for five months. Their routines and standards have changed, and now they just need to slowly get back into it. What, what, do, you, uh, what do you say to – I think the kids have an appreciation more for the sport, don't you, mm-hmm. and for whatever oh, they, sport? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like you totally appreciate sports when you don't have it. It's just like when you go through an injury, when you're missing sports, watching from the sidelines. And this is the opportunity for kids to really prepare themselves for when it does open up, you know, because they're not quite there yet. Like we're all in different protocols, all different, all around the different states. So it's just, you know, teach your kid how to prepare, how to like be fit, be ready um, for when it does start to, you know, turn into competition. So Christy Rampone is one of the best American soccer players ever. How can she, how can the average person or parent relate to your type of talent and success? How do you ground it in this book? Just going back through my youth experience of just, I was like, had so much free play and I was enjoying the sport. I played multiple sports. I went to school on a college um, basketball scholarship, played soccer. Like there's no one direct way to success and let your child kind of enjoy that journey and be a partnership with them and just let them figure out what they want to do rather pushing your interest on them. And when it comes to club, you have coaches who are extremely Mm -hmm. high octane, very demanding. It might be impossible to play soccer in your town and play basketball in your town. Yeah. It's having that open communication with the coach and realizing what their final goal is. If it's just winning, maybe that's not the right team to be on if you want to be a multiple sport athlete there's ways to figure it out my daughter plays both basketball and soccer at a competitive level and we just manage you know we had to pick a team that had opposite training schedules and we make it work and we're just having that rapport and open communication so your your coach understands what your your final goals are as well so when what did you find out christy when you retired what did you learn mm-hmm. about being a, a parent coach and the pressure on youth soccer that you couldn't have picked up when you were playing just that like I had to be really comfortable with the uncomfortable, to be honest, and watching your child from the sidelines fail and have to go through adversity and, like, ho- like help them persevere instead of doing it for them. You know, I think that was the hardest piece of just sitting back and and watching and then trying to, to help them at home discuss, like, what happened or how to get them through a, a situation that was uncomfortable for them. So, I mean, if they're not going to go pro and not going to get a full ride, are they wasting their time? Not at all. I think sports is an amazing athlete um, outlet for athletes, both physically and mentally. There's so much you learn through sports. And I always say, like, winning is a byproduct of developing. And through development, there's going to be mistakes happening. There's going to be losses and there'll be victories. And that's part of the process. And learning that will help you adjust better into the real world. Do you think the coaches, parents, and to agree players have had a chance to look back and saw how helpless they were to get back on the field, get a game, go to an ID camp? And are starting to maybe say, maybe I was too intense. Do you think this could be a reset moment? Yes, absolutely. I think this is a huge reset because parents that have been through the process are always saying, I wish I did it differently and not been so high, strong and stressed and fear of the unknown. Like, am I putting my kid in the right situation? Am I playing for the label? Am I playing, you know, for the elite status and just enjoying that, that process with their kids? Because not everybody is going to be a division one athlete, an Olympic athlete. So 
put your kid in the best environment to have fun with sports. Uh, would, are you enjoying the coaching aspect as much as yeah. the playing? I do. I, I, you know, it's, it's a challenge. You know, obviously I'm out of control of what happens on the field, but controlling and setting up game plans and putting the kids in the, yeah. in the right environment and just teaching and learning. And sometimes I approach a game not to win. I approach the game to, to teach them gotcha. you know, how to play low pressure, how to play high pressure at, at a younger age. And, but I'm very open with the parents to communicate that with them so they understand awesome. expectation. Pick up Chrissy Rampone's book, B-O-N, Raising Kids for Success in Sports and Life. Chrissy, congratulations. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.